Hello and welcome to Getting a Grip, your weekly tennis podcast. We serve up news and opinion on the world of tennis, hopefully without fault. So let us string you along with content from the beloved tennis tour all the way to grassroots tennis. Anyone outside of our big four now is next gen, so... This is this is the we're just going to constantly <laughs> refer to them. They'll be they'll be thirty five and retiring, and we're still going to be calling them next gen players. So. Yeah, Batista Agu, next gen player. So I think I think some of the governing bodies need to take a little bit more of a stance that's a little bit more unified, so that obviously players have a clear message. Because at the moment, there's not really a clear message about this sort of stuff. The more competitions you have going on, the more eyes you have on it, the more money you can make. Yep. But then we have to remember that these are human beings at the end of the day and it doesn't matter how much money you've got you're only physically and mentally capable of doing so much in a given amount of time welcome back to the getting a grip tennis podcast so what's going on in the tennis world this week we've got a roundup from indian wells looking at the final on both the men's and women's side we obviously got the miami open which has just started in the last few days another one of the masters 1000 events And then we'll dip into a little bit of Barty retirement talk as well, because obviously there hasn't been enough said about that. But anyway, first place to start is Indian Wells, which finished last week now. I guess this is, (laughs) we're almost a week out from that, but we're going to talk about it anyway, because it's interesting. Um, If we start with the men's final, so obviously we had the home Homeboy in Taylor Fritz taking on Rafa Nadal, who's been in sensational form. This is something we have to say every podcast, obviously. Um, Nadal was an amazing start to the year, unbeaten. He has. To this well, point. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> so, yeah, obviously Nadal had beaten Alcaraz. Uh, Merlin's prediction was sort of correct. It wasn't as easy as maybe you thought it was going to be. Um, in very windy conditions, but he got through that and then into the final. Myself and probably most people expected him to win that fairly easily, mainly because I'm lazy yep. and I haven't really been paying much attention to Taylor Fritz, but obviously he's been playing very well. Um, but it was the home the homeboy that came out on top in straight sets, actually. But then it obviously came out afterwards that Nadal had this injury to his ribs, which he which gave him breathing problems and he had to go to hospital and all that sort of um stuff so yeah what's your kind of reaction to that final um have you been following fritz much recently um yeah what how did you kind of react to that final and how it played out yeah interesting bit of tennis really um i I think it's a bit of a shock it's a shock to people who regularly you know sort of watch the tour and and see these matches played out like for example Rafael Nadal you wouldn't expect him to lose in a final um such as Indian Wells um none of us would have to be quite honest I think you know if anyone was going to take it from him it was going to be Alcaraz um and I think it came out as well that he was struggling with breathing slightly in that match as well I think so I think it was yeah, something that was correct. you know sort of beginning throughout the uh, the later stages of a tournament and obviously in the final it really affected him so I think I think what you're seeing there is maybe my prediction would have been right in a uh, in a world of completely fit people. That that's what I'm going to take from that. But apart from that, with Taylor Fritz, I think he's been playing quite well. Um, I, again, I'm like you. I haven't really followed him too much. I know him as you know one of these next gen players. He's coming through. Um, you know, he's starting to look really strong. 
But I, sometimes I don't know. He, the consistent performances across the tour are something that a lot of people do struggle with. Um, more a case on the women's tour than it is on a men's tour, uh, where that consistency can be harder to find sometimes. But yeah, like I say, once you look outside of the top 10, that, that consistency is harder to find. And uh, to be honest, we're starting to see it with these next-gen players that are at the top anyway. So, for example, team. Where is he now? Exactly. Yeah, I thought, yeah, he was going to be like the next big thing when he was coming through. Um, exactly. And then, yeah, I think obviously he won that US Open. Uh, during It was during the pandemic, wasn't it? It was when there was no crowds or anything. And then we thought, yeah, yeah he's going to, he should kick on from here. Then I think he had, yeah, maybe a few injury issues and things like that. But yeah, in terms of Fritz, yeah, I'm actually, he's actually younger than I thought he was, maybe just because of his stature. Yeah. I think he's only like 24 years old. So yeah, I suppose you could still class him as one of these uh, next generation players. Um, but I think it's that the boundary thing, now, isn't it? Yeah, like where do you draw the line? Because <laughs> Alcaraz is like eighteen, so are we? Where are we? Where are we drawing this boundary? I don't know. Anyone outside of our big four now is next gen. So this is this is the We're just going <laughs> to constantly <laughs> refer to them. They'll be they'll be thirty five and retiring, and we're still going to be calling them next gen players. So. Yeah, Batista Agu, next gen player. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think the thing that like, from the limited amount of time I've watched Fritz, the thing that impresses me is. The, just how well he moves for someone of that size. He's obviously quite a yeah. slender build, but he's like very flexible for someone of that size. And obviously, when you've got that height, you've already pretty much got the serve in the bag. Like you're, <laughs> you're going to get a lot of free points off the serve. But as we know, that's not enough um, at the very top level, especially guys who against guys who return as well as Rafa and and Novak. So yeah. you've got to have a lot more to your game. And that is, yeah, that's. What impresses me the most is his just his baseline game, really, for someone who's he's so tall. I think this is like a new trend that we're seeing amongst these taller players is just how well they can move. Because I think Berrettini is another example. He's a pretty, he's a pretty big fella, and as we saw at Wimbledon, like obviously he did lose that final to Djokovic, but he was he was going almost toe to toe with him, or at times he was yeah. from the baseline. Um, so yeah, I think just through better training, um, these guys now, even if you're like six four plus or whatever, you used to just have a serve and maybe a bit of a forehand and nothing else. Now these guys have got more of a well rounded game, um, which is yeah. Go on. I think we I think we've looked through history. You know, you take the Isner and the Anderson types, the Ivo Karlovic's of the world. Um, Milos Raonic as well. Like these, these people have, uh, you know, elude, they've had success elude them on the tour, um, sort of haunt them their whole careers. Where they can get, they can get so far, but they they can't string together consistent results. <clears throat> you know, unless it's based on that serve game. And as you say, you know, they'll get a lot of free points off of it. And there's a lot of people they could beat doing that. Um, but unfortunately, there are some people trained to defeat that. Uh, Murray was one of the prime examples at the height of his career, um, being one of the best returners in the world. Djokovic also being one of those people. You've got to bring Murray back into it, haven't you? Your little always, little always. boy. Well, he was one of the best returners in the world. No, he um, was, yeah. but, but the point being as well that I think, you know, a lot of these a lot of these players now are understanding how a taller person can move and, and move more efficiently. I think that's definitely a big thing. But it, I, I must say it also helps that courts are beginning to slow down um so you're seeing this a lot throughout the tour and 
this is something we can talk about in the future and you know the technical aspects uh, that we have in tennis but um yeah with slower courts these taller guys are going to get to more um and it's going to make them look like they're going more toe to toe with those who are better movers yeah i think i think the bounce also comes into that i think the bounce on these courts generally is a little bit higher than than the kind of low skiddy nature of surfaces back in you know like 90s even the noughties. So yeah, that does kind of bring them in into play a bit more. Okay, so that is, yeah, that's on the men's side. Let's talk a little bit about the the women's side of things. So obviously we had Iga Swiatek, is, I think that's how you pronounce it, even though when you read it, it literally doesn't look anything like that. But who am I to say how you pronounce the Polish language, name? <laughs> it is, yes. God, it's, <laughs> my Anglophileness is coming through very much there. Um, so yeah, Iga Swiatek, amazing, really. She is only 20 years old, so we could class her as next generation. Um, won the 2020 French Open, and she's been pushing at the top level for yeah a couple years now. Um, and she won that final against oh, the name escapes me. I think it was Sakaria, possibly, um, at Indian Wells through like very windy conditions, mm. um, which I'm sure like we can relate to. <laughs> there was. I, there was like a time when was it like last summer where we were we were playing in ridiculous conditions they had like this kind of collection of terraced houses like all the way around a bit like i suppose the stadium could have a similar effect where you've got wind mm. like basically swirling around in all directions yeah. <laughs> it just oh god it made us look like absolute tits it was, oh, well this horrible. is the funny thing you you forget how badly you're going to be able to move sometimes like the wind is one of those things where obviously footwork is the most important aspect you've got to make tiny tiny adjustments all the time uh, depending on how the ball bounces or swerves in the air for example um so yeah I, I honestly think that if you if you can beat someone in windy conditions then you've got a very good handle on rhythm and you've got a very good ability to return to rhythm every time you lose it because there's no doubt that in a windy conditions you're going to lose your rhythm here and there um but yeah, I think I think that's one of the most impressive things about this um, is that for a young player, she's she's managed to find that it's probably it's got to be a mental attitude specifically that can that can handle those sorts of conditions because it's very easy to give up. I mean, I know at that level as well, especially at the top level of tennis, they're not going to be so inclined to give up. You know, money, glory, all of that stuff on the line and and whatnot. You know, it's their livelihood. But at the same time, like you know, it's it's harder to overcome. Uh, various adversities throughout a match if if you've got that breathing down your neck quite literally mm, yeah I think it's in terms of, yeah when you're faced with windy conditions I think it's okay if it's if it's consistent like if it's coming from one end of the court you can adjust yeah. to that because you can like obviously if you're hitting against the wind you can go for it a bit more and obviously if you're hitting with the wind you obviously need to play with a bit more margin for error a bit more spin but when it's either coming from like the side which I think it was in her match and in the Nadal Alcaraz match, it becomes mm. so difficult, and <clears throat> like your footwork is just like heightened to another level. Your ability to right, basically, you've got to wait until the very last second to like plant your feet because otherwise you might mm. just miss the ball completely. And even the top, even the top players struggle struggled with it at times. You saw like Nadal missing a few shots that you would normally make. Shows we're all human yeah. and how difficult it is. Well, that's it. Like a lot of tennis, you you know, you're trained to anticipate ball. You're trained to set early, um, so that you can then you know make an impact with a shot. You know, hit something with a little bit more aggression or, or spin or whatever you're choosing to do in that moment. But yeah, that's exactly it. Like 
you have to wait longer you have to fight some of the the training instinct that you have and you have to go back to it does bring in talent i suppose but yeah like i say i I stick by the fact that it's about constantly refinding that rhythm yeah i think like you said it does in terms of um concentration and mentality that that comes to the fore even more like you said obviously to not get flustered by the conditions but also you have to focus that bit more on every shot that you play which can be very tiring but that that's where that resilience and kind of mental endurance comes in obviously right now we're straight into another big atp masters 1000 event or wta 1000 event as well um we're at miami open this time welcome to miami well done. i love that song well, that was terrible rendition will smith would be uh turning in his well he's not dead but he would be turning <laughs> in his grave <laughs> oh um, wow so yeah we've got oh, there's loads going on there's so many different matches where do we begin we've got we've got kyrgios absolutely smacking the ball about into going into god mode in the words of tennis tv um we had the all british matchup Norrie against draper and then obviously andy murray is still kind of trying to fight his way back to the top week by week um back with lendl now um and he's up against medvedev actually later today i think at the time of recording yeah, this four o'clock. be an interesting matchup do you want to talk about that one first how murray is going to match up against medvedev you want me to talk about murray oh that's a shock i'd never <laughs> expect that oh, no, I um, that. yeah of course of course you know so uh I think it's going to be an interesting match. <clears throat> Certainly one that's, uh, that's worth watching if you can, or at least following. Um, my instinct is saying, obviously, that Medvedev will win. Um, he's not been on the greatest form of late, and obviously, you know, there are many issues as to why that's the case, political and whatnot, you know, aside. Um, but, yeah, Andy Murray particularly is one of these people you can't ever write off. So <clears throat> it's early into this tournament. Andy will have had a bit of rest. He's probably going to be feeling, I'm hoping, a lot fitter and ready to go. Um, now with some new tactics um, with Ivan Lendl, and, and Lendl's obviously got a lot of experience against these players already, um, having coached uh, Zverev, um, you know, obviously recently and up till now. Um, but like I said, I, I think this is going to be an interesting match. And I, if anyone's going to take it uh, to a place that's a bit of an upset, then Murray's the man that can do it. Yeah, I think they've they've only played once before. I believe it was two or three years ago. And Medvedev won that in mm. two sets. I think the first set was pretty close. Um, but yeah, I think Murray is really striving for just a consistent run in in any of these tournaments. Um, yeah. And any kind of um, boost of confidence he can get, he'll obviously take. And if he if he manages to scout Medvedev, then that, that'll be a massive plus for him and give him maybe a bit more belief going into perhaps Wimbledon later in the year that he mm, can still sure. compete with these guys. I think he, he I think he still he does like Murray is a supreme capacitor. He does believe that he can still compete with these top guys. It's just well, he can. getting that run together, it. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just get it's just getting a consistent run in one of these tournaments and that yeah, that, that honing that match practice because if you keep going out in like the first few rounds, you can never really hone that kind of match craft specifically. You're always kind of fighting, yeah. For like we always talk about rhythm, but you're, he's always kind of fighting for a bit of rhythm within these tournaments. So yeah, mm. I mean, I would not, yeah, never, never write Murray off. Obviously, I would expect Medvedev to win, but 
who knows where his head at, head is at at the moment with yeah everything that's going on with regards to Russia. So yeah, I think it may be a closer match than most people think for that one. Um, we've obviously got Kyrgios. I don't know if did you see that Kyrgios match or the highlights? Oh, I saw some highlights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely smashing the ball. Even did a little. I did a little tweener, of course, because he has to. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, striking the ball so cleanly. We know he's capable of like hitting the ball that cleanly and with that much power, but it's just mm. seeing it come together in in one match or across a tournament. In fact, is something that we kind of I really want to see because this guy, he's got so much talent and we've saying this it for years and years and years, and it's just like yeah, it just just needs to realise it in like a big tournament. Show everyone. I tell you what. It was partially why I was excited when, um, you know, obviously some social media stuff came out that he and Murray were getting on as good friends at one point. So, uh, yes, I'm relating something back to Murray, of course. But the point being is, in my head, if you take Kyrgios's raw talent and that ability for tennis, and then you take Murray's hard work, determination, attitude, if you were to merge those together, that's an unstoppable world number one in perfect craft. Um you know, like, he can already hit all the shots. We know he can. And the, the only only difference for Kyrgios is the mental attitude in each match is, you know, and, and how much he's feeling it. Um, you, we can't tell him how to play better tennis, uh, with which he's actually, um, what was it, criticised a fan in, in front of the stadium. I don't know if you've seen the video. Very mm. funny. Um, but, you know, this is this is the point. Like, you know, he, he knows what he can do. Um, I think he, yeah, just like I say, he just needs that push. Um, and if he plays like that, then yeah, absolutely. He'll he'll wash the tour out. Yeah, I, it's it's a hard one, isn't it? No one's inside his head, so we don't really know what he's thinking. But he is <laughs> he is very much a free spirit. So I just don't know if he's he's ever going to have that that mental discipline, for want of a better word, that Murray etc. have got. So if not, I'm not worried. It's great entertainment, and it's just good to see him play. Yeah, it is. Like at least hopefully he stays on the tour for you know as as long as possible because as much as tennis is just about it's a sport between well in this case two individuals it is an entertainment business as well as we've Quite said right. many a time so the more we can have these kind of guys him like Monfils as well these kind of players it all kind of just adds to the the theater of it mm. um yes another thing that does maybe add to the theater but not in the right way is <laughs> Players throw their rackets against the ground. Now, we did have a, mm. a little debate about this a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to have to retract part of what I said, where, where I said it's fine for players to throw their rackets against the ground if it's like close to them. Now that I've seen what can happen when thrown yep. incorrectly, I, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. I did see a little video from... Roddick actually he was showing people what the correct way is to throw your racket on the ground or hit the ball and it was like you got to th- throw it like face down so that it doesn't like yeah. ping everywhere but it's like maybe just don't throw it on the ground at all that would probably be easier that would be better yeah that would be a lot better um yeah I I, I don't know uh, Jensen Brooksby you know again he's a, he's a victim of the emotion of the tennis tour the emotion of these high profile matches and whatnot um 
I think what strikes me about this, and we already know my opinion, I'm a little bit more hard stance on, on this sort of stuff because, you know, you're, you're trying to win fans. That's not going to win you fans, especially the way it ended up uh, for him. But well, it does it does strike me that, for example, Novak Djokovic, he got disqualified from the US Open when he hit a ball really hard and it hit a line umpire. Um, how is this much different, in my opinion? I don't understand how this is much different. Um, so... In many retrospects, I think I think some of the governing bodies need to take a little bit more of a stance that's a little bit more unified so that obviously players have a clear message. Because at the moment, there's not really a clear message about this sort of stuff because I think the world of tennis is very accepting of the fact that, yes, it's a singles match and therefore you're one brain on the court. There's going to be emotional ups and downs, so you can have a little fit every now and then. That's fine. But we need to work out where those lines are. Um, so I, I think that's the main lesson here. Yeah, a few like a few pundits have, have said a similar thing. I think the more you see um, the repercussions of throwing a racket on the ground and how it can literally just ping off anywhere, I think it, that, yep. that excuse starts to wear thin because you know that that's a possibility. Even if you're like, oh, I only just threw it down by my feet. You've now seen many times mm -hmm. where that's gone and hit someone or nearly hit someone, so there's a clear yep. risk there. And yeah, yeah you're right. I, I agree in terms of the ATP, WTA, etc., needing to come down harder on this. Because I think in Jensen's case, he may have got like, like deducted a point or whatever, but yeah. he should have yeah. been, he should have been disqualified really. It happened twice as yeah. well. In the match. Yeah. This is a, I would say it's a repeating occurrence and technically umpires as well uh, need to have a better handle on it. So, you know, if it's a repeating occurrence, then that is grounds for disqualification. So I'm a bit surprised um, that it, that he wasn't. Yeah, like fine, fines are not going to do much in this instance. It has to be, you know, actual ramifications in the match of your yeah. actual, yeah, 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 for sure. In terms of the result, so yeah, they, I think I think they will, in time, come to that conclusion and they will come down hard on it because it seems to be slipping away a, a little bit in recent years. Let's talk about a certain Mrs. Ashley Barty. She is. Shockingly, decided to retire from tennis at just the age of 25, saying that mm. she is, well, she wants to chase other dreams and she's absolutely spent. And that even after winning Wimbledon, she wasn't quite fulfilled. Yeah, this is, obviously it's come as a shock to a lot of the outside world. But I think, you know, her inner kind of inner circle, her coaches were sort of expecting this to happen at some point relatively soon. She's yeah. mentioned it before to them. Um, I don't know what you what you make of it, and obviously it it goes in contrast to, I suppose, what we've come to consider success on the tennis tour, given you know the the big three or four, what they've done in the last twenty years, and how they've just yeah. consistently maintained that incredible level. Now we've got someone who is clearly one of the best, if not the best, women's tennis player of recent times, retiring at you know maybe even before her peak or at her peak, which is just, yeah, yeah. a completely unusual thing, hence the shock headlines. Again, it's that unusual aspect that makes you question, you know, everything about tennis, I suppose. So I know that on the female tour, obviously, it's a lot more, um, or at least it's a lot less certain who's going to win each tournament. So there's a lot more uncertainty surrounding everything that occurs. Um so, again, like I say, you've seen Barty be so successful, yes, but at the same time, like, through the tour, is that 
how does that compare to the men's tour where obviously you can have Djokovic winning X, Y and Z number of tournaments a year and then there's just a few extras that he's not playing that the other people can pick up, you know? So, you know, you've got these scenarios in, in women's tennis that um, it, it makes it harder. It makes it a harder place to survive. I'm not going to talk too much about that because I have no experience um uh, nor am I female, so therefore, you know, it would be wrong for me to make too many comments. But um, yeah, I, I think that it's just her listening to her own self, and um, you know, all credit to that because you know, if she doesn't feel like it's going to fulfil her anymore, then you know, the, she's not going to enjoy it and put on her best performances. Um, and it's quite possible, you know, people change careers all the time in life. Maybe she just realised that she didn't want to. We've got to remember that being a professional tennis star is is a career in itself uh, that may lead to more tennis things in the future but not everyone wants to stay there forever yeah and she's she's previously um had a couple of stints out of tennis for you know like a year year and a half she went and played in the the women's big bash which is the the t20 cricket competition over in australia she's and she i think she played uh in a golf championship or something to like a pretty high level she's clearly you know she's one of those kind of one of those people with the good genetics who can pick up things quickly, although mm. I don't really like people describing it like that. But yeah, she obviously um, has got other interests in yeah various other sporting arenas. And she, also the other thing she alluded to is just wanting to be at home with her family more. We've seen it in yeah. previous um, press conferences. There was one time where she brought out her, I think it was her niece or something, into a press conference and she was basically saying like this is this is what matters this is what makes me happy and as we've touched upon before these yeah. tennis players are traveling all around the world almost all year and i think it's quite easy to forget that because people think oh yeah, yeah you've got a great life traveling around to all these different places but you're you're likely going to be away from your family for like a long long period of time and seeing for, hotel rooms and tennis courts alone yeah literally especially like when we were more into the pandemic where it was, you know, very strict in terms of like who you, who you could bring with you and how often yeah. you could, or where you could go outside of your hotel, things like that. So it does take its toll. And obviously some people will feel that more than others. People have different priorities mm. and she's seen this as the right time to yeah, go and spend more time with their family. So I just think all, all power to it. Everyone's got, you know, different um, ideas of what, you know, success or just, happiness in general is in life so yes it's a yeah. big difference between uh, the women's and the men's tours for sure because you know like the constant conversation in the men's tours is who's the goat who's the goat who's the goat but at the same time and by goat just so that everyone knows i mean the greatest of all time uh, well, I'm sure <laughs> just in case anyone's <laughs> well I, i'd hope so i'd hope so um but yeah like with a three-year-old the... listening or something <laughs> But obviously, with the with the women's tour, that that's less of a thing because it's less consistent. Um, so you know, success is viewed differently. But yeah, no, I'm uh, like I say, it's sad to see her go for the entertainment aspect. But yeah, obviously, it's it's her decision uh, and only right for her. Yeah, I well, I also think this is probably something we can talk about another time. But just in general, the tennis schedule and how crazy it is. This is it's not just a th unique to tennis either. This is like something I see in cricket and well football because obviously the more competitions you have going on the more eyes you have on it the more money you can make yep. but then we have to remember that these are human beings at the end of the day and it doesn't matter how much money you've got you're only physically and mentally capable of doing so yep. much in a given amount of time but yeah I think that's something we can 
probably touch upon in a, in a future episode the schedules in in modern sport in general well insane aren't they people people give so much of their time okay time for another round of tennis trivia i think we're on round four now merlin obviously set a new benchmark last week with a lofty three out of five three out not of sure five. i'm going to be able to beat that but I give it my best shot. I think multiple choice is going to give me a little bit more of a, a chance, although that probably means the questions are more difficult. So, well, here we out. have it. You know, you, you could get, you could reach the heights of three out of five, the over 50% consistency that we look for. Um, I still wouldn't be happy if that was my serve percentage, but, you know, it's That's, an improvement on the first week. It's a 2-1, isn't it, in university terms? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, exactly, exactly. Anyway, let's go with question one, shall we? So we've talked a lot about the big three and the big four in the past few weeks. Um, obviously, it's a big four, um, in case anyone is doubting my opinions on the subject. But before the reign of the big four, tennis was a very different world, a much, a much more con inconsistent world. So in 2002, which incidentally was the last winner of Wimbledon, that reigned outside of the top four since uh, up until today. Who was that winner? Who was the 2002 Wimbledon winner? For the men's singles. For the men's singing. singles Don't that was outside of the top four. So your options are Pete Sampras, Goran Ivanisevic, Leighton Hewitt, and David Nalbandian. Ooh. that has definitely helped me out because I was struggling for a name and I think, yes, you've mentioned so these, it So this is the last person to win Wimbledon before the top four started taking control of that tournament forevermore. Yeah, um, I think it might be a little bit late for Goran. I think his was closer to like 2000, 2001. Um, who else did you say, sorry? Pete Sampras. David Nalbandian and Leighton Hewitt. Yeah, I think slightly, maybe slightly late for Sampras as well. Um, I don't, I'm not sure Nalbandian won Wimbledon. He might have won another Grand Slam. I'm going to go with Leighton Hewitt. Correct. Well done. So, Leighton Hewitt, before the, before the reign of a slightly more unstoppable Andy Murray, was my favourite player on the tour. He was the first player that I started to follow and support because he was outside of sort of the bulk of the, the early players. Everyone supported Federer, so I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to get into this camp straight away. Um, and I really enjoyed the way Leighton Hewitt played, uh, which Based really makes for an interesting... Exactly. And this, this is my style. Um but nonetheless, he was a he was a showman. He had some emotion, you know. Like I say, maybe he was a culprit of some of these anger outbursts in the past as well. But uh, no, he was definitely an entertainer. Very well, very well done. So that's one out of five. So number number two, question number two. Even Lendl is now back with Andy Murray after great previous successes. My question is now about Lendl. How many major titles has Ivan Lendl won? with his coachees. So these are the people that he has coached on the ATP Tour. These are major titles, which include Grand Slams, Olympics, and the ATP Tour Finals. Your answers are 5, 6, 7, or 11. Oh, I've got to do the maths now. Which, as a maths teacher, I, um, 
I should be well. You should be okay well with that. Used to, but I'm often, really hope so. often mental maths <laughs> is a bit of a struggle, especially under such high pressure. Um, obviously, with Murray, he so that would have been 2013 Wimbledon, 2016 Wimbledon, uh, 2012 Olympics. Was he with him in 2012 Olympics? Definitely the 2016 Olympics. Then, who else did he coach? Zverev, I don't know. Did Zverev win the Olympics? I don't know if he was coaching him at that time. Oh, this is tough. What were, the, what were the numbers again? Was it five, six? Five, six, seven, and 11. Mm, I'm going to go with... Oh, I'll just go down the middle. Seven. Seven is correct. Well done. <laughs> yeah, definitely wasn't a guess. So what we're talking about here is um, obviously the titles won were Andy Murray's three Grand Slams, his ATP Tour Finals and his two Olympics and Alexander Zverev's ATP Tour Finals. And that's what oh, we yeah. saw. Oh, I forgot Eman about Andy. Murray's US Open. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, when you didn't mention his US Open, I thought, yeah, well, Murray didn't win anything major, at least when we're talking about these uh, different titles, until Lendl was on the scene. Mm. Okay, yeah. so two out of five. Two out of five, you've got 100% so far. You're feeling confident. Well, I mean, I did just guess the last one, but yes. You did just guess the last side. one, but that guess worked out. This is the this is the joy of multiple choice. Educated guess. Educated guess. If there is okay. such a thing. Yes. So you might be in luck here, because I thought that was a harder question. Um, but nonetheless, it is multiple choice for all of the questions. Number three, who holds the title for most matches won in a single Grand Slam tournament? Now, your answers here are Roger Federer, Juan Martin Del Potro, Rafael Nadal, or Jimmy Connors. Most matches won at a single Grand Slam. Most matches won in a single Grand Slam tournament. So I don't, yeah, I'm not sure if this is... And a, it's shockingly close between the top few. Yeah, like, I think you'd always, you'd be inclined to just straight up say Nadal, obviously, because of all the French Open wins. But then when you're, you're talking about just wins in general, then you've got to think of their longevity. So obviously Federer's won... Um, Eight Wimbledon's, hasn't he? Um, but mm -hmm. he, he, even in the ones he hasn't won, like a lot of times he's got to the latter stages. He's made stages. some deep runs. Yeah. So, <sighs> Jimmy Connors as well. I can't remember which slam it was, but he, I'm sure he's won a lot at one major. Ooh, I'm gonna go with. I'll go. I'll go with Federer just because I think Nadal's the obvious answer. But I'm definitely not confident. Well, you're right to not be confident because get a grip. I enjoyed how you didn't even uh, have a look at, in at Juan Martín del Potro. My little red herring in there. You just immediately went, Nah, he's not won enough. Um, has yeah. won. Has won a Grand Slam though. Nonetheless, your answer was actually Rafael Nadal. Okay, and it was one. for the obvious reasons. So it's that <laughs> unstoppable winning of the French Open. There's extra, there's extra semis, there's extra finals. They make the difference, and obviously his longevity. 
he builds his life around playing at the French Open. That so is that is crazy though, because he's still um, like four years younger than Federer. So do you want to know how? Do you want to know how many matches he's won? Go on then. A hundred and five. Anyway, right. question number four. What I want to know now is which female player holds the record for the longest time spent at world number one. Your possible contenders are Serena Williams, Steffi Graf, Martina Navratilova, and Martina Hingis. Mm. Most, mo- what is it? Most weeks at number one? Did you say? Yeah, the longest time spent at the world. So time. it's not like a consecutive run; it's just in total. Yes. Okay. Glad we've cleared that up because that's clearly going to make a difference to what I go with. So I have all the information at hand. Mm. Obviously, Navratilova and Hingis, that is slightly before my time. But Serena Williams or Steffi Graf? Hmm. I'll, I'll go with the, the one that I know. I'll go with Serena Williams. But again, I'm really not sure. Get a grip. Unfortunately, the answer is Steffi Graf with a very impressive 377 weeks. So, very unfortunate Perfect. there. Serena Williams has got a, a long run at the top, but not quite as long. Yeah, I think Serena may have the longest consecutive run. I'm not sure. I know, like, I, I believe that course. is correct. Barty was like on course to get close to that, obviously before she retired. Mm. But yeah, mm, interesting. But no, very interesting. Okay, so how are we feeling now in terms of confidence? Oh, it's on the floor. I've got, I've got to get this one to just tie with your last week's score. So pressure. This on. is very much the question. You need to, you need to get this answer correct in order to tie with my score last week. But it is a doozy of a question. So, question number five. In 2005, how many female Grand Slam champions were not competing on the tour? Wait. And your answers are zero, one, three, and four. So think about it this way. You've got four Grand Slams, and that means you've got four winners in a year of those Grand Slams, how many of those four players were not competing on the tour? I'm still confused by the, the, the phrasing of the question. <laughs> so quite simply, you can enter a Grand Slam tournament whilst being a wild card or getting through qualifier rounds. So you might oh, not enter right. the main draw because of your ranking. And your ranking is only available if you are playing regularly on the tour. So, for example, uh, if Rafael Nadal decides that he just wants to play Roland Garros, even if he didn't have a ranking, because he's such a champion, they might go, yeah, you can have a wild card to that tournament. He might not play another match at another tournament all year. No so Masters, wait, you're, no you're Challenger events. Of, you're talking about players who weren't seeded winning these Grand Slams. Not only not seeded, they weren't playing on the tour. Blimey. And then the and the options were 
basically to qualify to entry to these tournaments. So the answers, the numbers are 0, 1, 3, and 4. 0, 1, 3, and 4. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the way you've said the question makes me think it's towards the higher end. <laughs> that might just be your, your acting background coming in there, trying to psych me out. Oh, I mean, I've got, uh, there's no way I can make an educated guess or anything because I, I have nothing to go off. But it's obviously, pretty, it's pretty random here. You've got mm, four possibilities, you've got 25% chance. These questions are brutal this week. God. Should have known that when they became multiple choice, they were going to step up. They have to be harder. They have to be harder. <sighs> I've got to protect my lead. Okay. I'm going to, uh, I'll lean towards the higher end. I'll go with three because three is a magic number after all. So going with the third answer again on a question you don't know the answer to has in fact given you the correct answer. Well done. So the answer is three of the four Grand Slam champions on the women's tour in 2005 were not actually playing on the women's tour in 2005. So the fun thing about this answer is both Serena and Venus Williams both didn't have enough points to qualify for the tour. Uh, and the French Open champion was also ill throughout that year after having won the French Open. So, um, yeah, that's one of the main differences. But like I say, that that's three players of the women's tour who obviously weren't playing regular tennis, but obviously picked up Grand Slams, which I think is a very good highlight Um of the inconsistency of the tour and the fact that it's anybody's game. Well, yeah, and I suppose that, I suppose you could say that makes it more interesting. Some people prefer to just have, you know, your reliable champions exactly. or whatever. You just know pretty much who's going to be in like the last four, but it's good. A little bit of variety spices it up. Indeed, a bit. indeed. Well, I've learned something new today again. And well done to you. You've matched my score three out of five. We're, we're heading it. We're heading in the right direction. I think. Or we get towards like three or four most weeks. I think that's about right. All right. Uh, that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Um, either, yeah, I guess through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or if you're watching on YouTube, please, if you can, like the video, subscribe, share it around if you feel so inclined to do so. And we'll see you again next week. <laughs>